Our sermon passage for this morning is Psalm 100, and you can find that on page 500 in the blue Bible in front of you. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, especially after the weekend with the men. Uh, I was so reinvigorated by my time with you brothers, and um, what I've really been looking for is this, the whole gathered assembly. It is a privilege to be here because I'm remembering that uh, 10 years ago, I was with you in the middle school, and 16 years ago, I was with you when you were at the old Guilford Chapel, and now this. It's kind of like creation ex nihilo. I mean, where, where did this come from? <laughs> so I'm just encouraged singing with you and seeing the, the, from my perspective, the new building. And uh, what a joy to see the evidence of the Lord's grace, even in this gathered assembly this morning. Um, Mike mentioned that he and I were together 16 years ago. And when he came here, I went with my family to Dubai. And... Um, we're in the United Arab Emirates. This is a country that borders Saudi Arabia and Oman. It's on the Persian Gulf. The city is situated 70 miles across the water from Iran. So just a fascinating place to be, even geopolitically. Uh, what we love most is um, the, the cross-current of different uh, nationalities and people groups who have descended upon the place. And what's interesting is uh, only three generations ago, these people were largely nomads in the desert, the Emirati people. And they were camel herders and pearl divers and fishermen. And during the summer, they would come into the, uh, the oasis and uh, cultivate dates. And um, then oil was discovered in around 1960 and overnight, fabulous wealth, uh, leading to what you see today on TV, the tallest skyscraper in the world and the islands built out in the Gulf and 200 nationalities who have come in to build the city, which provides a fascinating context for evangelism and for a local church. So uh, we have a very different context, but we have the same risen Savior, and we proclaim the same gospel that you do here. So we feel a great partnership with you, and uh, it is my privilege to be here with you this morning to open God's word. Let us pray again as we, as we approach the word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken. We recognize that that in itself is a gift. We thank you, Lord, that your word has been preserved for us and handed down and that we can consider it this morning. And so we ask that you would meet with us by your spirit and that you would awaken us to the greatness of the things we will consider as we approach your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In recent weeks, my wife and I have been in Atlanta. We've been on kind of an extended family leave for a few months this, this year. And uh, one thing I noticed, of course, in Atlanta, you're in the Bible Belt down there and uh, church on every corner. And it's kind of the same in Dubai, except it's not churches. It's mosques on every corner. Uh, in fact, in the Emirate of Dubai alone, there are hundreds and hundreds of mosques. And I think the idea is that in urban areas, you're supposed to be at all times within a five minute walk of a mosque. And every Friday, you will see the men pouring in, reciting prayers and going through the rituals and listening to the mosque messages. But one thing they won't be doing is singing because there is no corporate praise in the mosque. Singing doesn't feature in Muslim worship. In fact, for some, music is downright forbidden. So no congregational music, no instruments, no praise bands, none of that is happening on Fridays in the mosque. W.M. Clow said, Muslim worshipers never sing. Likewise, a Buddhist temple never resounds with a cry of praise. They are never jubilant with the songs of the forgiven. And in the place where we meet, where Mike has been and has preached before, um, now there is a Sikh temple that has gone up uh, just a couple buildings down. And week after week, people go there to worship their God and to hear teaching, but they never respond to the message with melodious praise. Nor, for that matter, if you think about it, does the secular world engage in what we have been doing over the last few minutes. When Apple holds its annual new product events, there is a certain religious ritual to it. Many assemble for the demos and the unveiling of new products. Tim Cook may preach the virtues of the fastest ever iPhone. Millions may respond in sacrificial giving. <laughs> but can you imagine them joining together in corporate singing for the iPhone 12 Pro Max? On the other hand, it seems that we cannot get Christians to stop singing, no matter where they are, in catacombs, in cathedrals, throughout church history. Do you know that in Saudi Arabia, underground congregations actually go to the trouble of soundproofing the walls and windows? Why? So that they can lift up their voices without detection. Why is it impossible to stop God's people from singing? This is what we're going to consider in this brief psalm this morning so brief that I just want to read it one more time because remember, this is poetry we're considering. Look again at Psalm 100. Ask yourself, why is it that Christians sing? A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So here we have an invitation to exuberant worship. And it's not just this psalm, it's lots of them. So we see much the same thing. If you just turn back a page, look at Psalm 95, where you see something similar there. Psalm 95, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Or look at Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Or Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Now, not all of the Psalms are this way. Some of the Psalms, you know, are laments, cries from people who have felt forgotten by God or even rejected by him. And other Psalms are confessions of sin. They're songs of penitence. So whether it's praise, whether it's wisdom in the creation psalms, lament, John Calvin called the psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. So every emotional state, every attitude or frame that you find yourself in is addressed by these psalms that actually put words in your mouth. It's interesting. You know, the rest of the Bible speaks to us. The psalms speak for us. And here today, we have invitations and incentives to praise the living God. Uh, notice in the psalm here, Psalm 100, that it's broken down into four paragraphs in your Bible. I don't know if you can see it on the overhead or four stanzas was well, not on the overhead. So I hope that you have it in front of you. You know, it's in four stanzas there. And what we really have here is an invitation followed by an incentive and then an, a second invitation followed by a second incentive to give thanks. So let's just walk through those together this morning. The first invitation you see in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now these psalms, remember, were written in the first instance for the people of Israel, the, the covenant community of God in the era before Jesus Christ. They were God's chosen people whose worship was centered in the Jerusalem temple. And notice the progression here in the first couple verses, beginning with the shout, that joyful noise, leading to serving the Lord in temple worship, which results in the enjoyment of the presence of God there in verse two. So the invitation is to come before God in public worship, but not to do so with slavish fear, not with foreboding and gloom. No, it's with joyful noise. It's with gladness, loud singing. Now, we should just pause here and ask, my Christian friend, is this how you approach Sunday morning worship with this kind of attitude? Are you arrested by the wonder of what we're singing? Are you exulting in it like the psalmist instructs us to hear with joyful noise? Now, let's be clear. Sometimes 
in the Christian life, mourning and lamenting are appropriate because we live in a fallen world. I mean, we can think of congregations in other parts of the world that are suffering in ways that are almost unimaginable to us. I heard recently in Afghanistan, some of the Christian leaders were identified and arrested and churches have been driven deep underground there. There is a place in a fallen world for mourning and lamentation. It's too early, isn't it, for triumphalism or victorious chest beating. Now, this is no place as we gather here for, for trite happiness. But as a general rule, there is a privileged place for rejoicing in our Sunday morning gatherings. Do you remember what Paul said to the Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So Christians, as we gather, we ought not be weepy wet blankets, like that little girl who once observed, that horse must be a Christian. It's got such a long face. This Psalm actually commands us to make a joyful noise. I take it that that means we should sing loudly. We should sing with exuberance and feeling. And notice here, it's not talking about the music. That's not in the psalmist's mind at all. It's not talking about whether we use electric guitars or pipe organs. Rather, we should sing our hearts out to the, the living God that we're worshiping, exulting in praises and joyous song. It reminds me of a rock and roll album that I once had by the Canadian rock band Rush. On the flip side, it said, for best results, play at maximum volume. <laughs> I think that's what the psalmist is saying here, except he's not referring to music. He's referring to the voices of God's people. That's the most important thing. You know, anybody can turn up the volume on a guitar. I mean, the pagan world can do that. In fact, they can do that better than we can. This speaks of human voices being elevated, singing as the vehicle of intense joy. So one of the things I really enjoyed over the last couple of days with the brothers at the retreat was the, the music. You all have, have gifted musicians and um, music is to serve the singing. In, uh, in many churches that I've been to, uh, especially in America, I've noticed sometimes the musical accompaniment is so heavy that it kind of steps on the voices of the congregation. Singing, though, is the most important element, the most important instrument that we uh, use to elevate our affections as we gather here. Let the music serve the singing, enhance it, underscore it, and when we sing, you know, we're not the audience. Who is the audience in our singing on Sundays? It is God himself. So worship isn't about pleasing us. It's about pleasing him. And it's about worshiping in the way that he has said. Right? We're doing it for him. So what he has set down in scripture should shape what we do. You know, sometimes you hear about the worship wars. Where people start to elevate their own individual preferences and develop, um, you know, preferences over one kind of music or another, so much so that 
we sometimes hear of an eight o'clock traditional service or you go to the 10.30 contemporary service or the six o'clock liturgical service as though it's about you and slotting into your personal preferences. Sadly, these things have fractured churches in the past. Well, D.A. Carson said, we ought to make worship delightful. What makes worship delightful to us is not its novelty or its aesthetic beauty, but its object. So the psalm says, come into his presence with singing. And this is the kind of thing that has marked God's people throughout the centuries. You know, singing began to be really pronounced um, at different points in history, but one of those points was during the 1700s in the Great Awakening in, in England. Uh, churches began to be struck by how, how loudly other congregations were singing. Sometimes one congregation would complain that the other congregation down the street was singing too loudly. They would train one another in how to sing in parts. Have you all done that? Well, let's just, let's spend a few moments uh, instructing one another on how to sing by using John Wesley's rules of singing. This is what he gave his English Methodist congregation in 1761. Let me just give you four bullet points from Wesley. Number one, he said, sing lustily. Now that means sing with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep but lift up your voice with strength. Now, when we were singing earlier today, is that what you were doing? Number two, sing modestly. Do not bawl as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation, but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one clear melodious sound. Point three, sing in time. Whatever timing is sung, be sure to keep with it. Do not run before, nor stay behind it. But attend closely to the leading voices and move therewith as exactly as you can. And then number four, above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. You know, it's possible when we gather here on Sundays in our singing, to just be going through the motions. And your mind is a hundred miles away from the content of what we're singing. Which is why I encourage all of us to pray beforehand before we assemble on Sundays. Because what we're engaged in even now is spiritual warfare. I mean, it's warfare to keep our minds focused on the content of the word and the song. Pray beforehand, have an eye to God in every word we sing. As we sing, God is glorified. It reminds me of the time in Dubai when uh, there was a non-Christian from the Basque region of Spain. And uh, he was coming along and he, he commented one day on how heartily we sang and how there are people in our congregation from all these nationalities and yet they were singing. And he said, he, the, the hairs on, on my arm would, would stand up when you sing. He said... I didn't believe what they were singing, but they sure did. And not long after that, he was converted and brought into membership of our church. You know, when we sing as a church, we collectively are taking ownership of the gospel that is preached. So we're taking ownership of the Lord's prayer that we prayed or of 
the ancient creeds that we affirm or the regular proclamation of the word. You know, when we come to church on Sunday, we're not the consumers. Right? We're not like the passengers on the bus and the guy doing the real work is the preacher. No, all of us are working together and we're going to think more about that. We're taking ownership of the work. So much so, so active is membership in a local church that Matt Merker in his recent book on corporate worship said, when you join a church, you join the choir. You become a steward for the spiritual vitality of the body, a stewardship you fulfill in part by opening your mouth to sing. So we're collectively engaging our emotions. Just think of the language the psalm, psalmist uses in verse 2. Gladness, singing, a joyful noise. Singing aligns our feelings with the sheer greatness of the God we're seeing in the word. So whether it's an 18th century hymn or a modern praise song, the point is this. We're together exulting in biblical truth. Now, what does the world exult in? The world exults in SEC championships, World Series victories, Harry Styles in concert. What about you? What is it that energizes you emotionally? What would you say, or maybe more to the point, what would your friends say is the thing that you like to talk about most? The thing that awakens your affections. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's movies, songs on the radio. Friends, every Sunday we gather with God's people to reprogram ourselves and our affections to that which is most sublime, most wonderful. We come here to realign ourselves with what's really worth living for. We hear the truth and then we respond in praise and song. Now, I mentioned earlier that we're not the audience. You know, God is the audience of corporate worship. But you know, at the same time, it's also true that we are teaching one another when we sing. So there's a vertical element, but also a horizontal element. Uh, we talked about this together over the weekend with the men, Ephesians 5.19, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's striking about that is that we are all instructing one another in the ways that we sing. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, Word-Centered Church, calls this reverberation. You know, it's like the church as echo chamber. So the word goes out from the pulpit and it echoes around and is amplified by the voices of the congregation and through the readings of scripture, and then afterward, conversations over lunch and home groups throughout the week and all the other one-to-one -one relationships represented in this room. Friends, this is what the psalm is urging us to do. Our God is so worthy of praise that we will actually be singing of him forever and ever. I mean, in the same way that the whole world could not contain all the books that are written of him, so all of eternity will not exhaust all of the songs of praise for him. This invitation to praise God is so universal that it cannot be contained within the walls of this building. Notice in verse 1. 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Who? All of the earth. So not just Israel. God's chosen people during a a period of redemptive history. Not just us here today. No, this is an invitation that goes out to the neighborhood. You can even see through the windows here. And goes globally around the world. The whole earth is being summoned. A free invitation is being given to all of God's people. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So here we have a missionary invitation in the Psalms. It's pronounced, actually. Uh, Look back at Psalm 96 and notice the language he uses. Look at Psalm 96, verse 7. 96, 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. This is an anticipation of the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the Old Testament eagerly awaited a day when God's people would no longer be one ethnic group, but a global community. We saw the anticipation of that in the Jeremiah reading just a few minutes ago. A messianic community was being predicted. So if Israel was described as a tent, well, the prophets were saying, time to enlarge the tent, time to lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. Why do that? Because very soon, all of the nations would come streaming in and up the mountain. This was God's plan from the beginning, the irresistible advance of God's kingdom. That is why churches today should be careful that they're not becoming ingrown. Religious cushions. John Stott said the local church can resemble the local golf club except that the common interest of its members happens to be God rather than golf. They see themselves as religious people who enjoy doing religious things together. They pay their subscription and reckon that they're entitled to certain privileges. They're completely introverted, like an ingrown toenail. It is a recipe for a low-impact church. It is sad when churches don't make an impact on the community around them, isn't it? But let me say that what I've come to know about Sterling Park Baptist is that you all are doing such a good job in thinking outwardly. I mean, even in the last few days with Mike talking about so much of the, uh, the local impact ministry that you're doing, opening the place up on Saturdays, folks are coming in. Occasionally, there's a barber here offering haircuts. There's ESL classes. There's AA, there is food pantry. Uh, I'm personally inspired by that. I want to take some of these lessons back with me to Dubai. And I'm just thinking about the neighborhood here. You know, we, we just drove in, and I'm thinking, I can't imagine a church better situated for evangelistic impact than you are here. I mean, this building is one of the most strategic buildings in the Washington, D.C. area. And I'm excited about the prospect of something as mundane as a building campaign so that this asset can be maximized for uh, the strongest impact possible for the sake of the neighborhood and ultimately the nations. Uh, Friends, we have a message that is worthy of singing about more and more. And I pray that more and more you as a congregation will be characterized as people who are thinking outwardly. 
I mean, what did we pray for in the pastoral prayer? Well, we prayed for the Zulu people of South Africa. And I'm so encouraged about the work you're doing in Macedonia. You know, we in Dubai share the same vision as you because we are arrested by the same message that we're considering here. Shout to the Lord, all of the earth. Friends, Christ calls us to go outside the walls of this building with the message. Not just us in here, them out there. Like Harvey Kahn said about evangelism, to the streets and not pray God to the study. He had written this book on evangelism and uh, he was afraid. He was worried that it might, be become, it might become what he called just one more exercise in blackboard evangelism. You know, one more illegitimate way of providing writer and reader, one more excuse to learn a little bit more and do a little bit less to keep off the streets and out of the kitchens. So why don't you start an evangelistic Bible study in your workplace? Why don't you do that? Or why don't you begin intentionally inviting your neighbors in and uh, getting to know them? Consider what you can do to ensure that this congregation does not become a religious cushion. Befriend your coworkers, invite them in. May you not ever be a church that's growing in knowledge but not interested in sharing the truth. This psalm invites us, no, commands us, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all of the earth. Shouts and glad worship and joyful songs. Friends, if the Bible produces this kind of response, there must be something explosive about its message. Which brings us to the incentive. So what we've had thus far is simply an invitation to, to worship. But there's an incentive nestled in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord... He is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I remember years ago, I was on vacation at the beach, and uh, I went to a Pentecostal church on a Sunday morning where the pastor there kept saying again and again, let's get excited, let's get excited. And I was sitting there thinking, well, excited about what? For what reason? Working them into a frenzy, but what was it all about? Well, this psalm says to worship God, to exalt in him, we need to, verse 3, know something. Know that the Lord, he is God. Notice how important is knowledge. Now, in ancient Athens, there was an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And they figured... Of all of the gods of the seas and the underworld and the forests, they may have left one out. But we don't worship an unknown God. Rather, we worship one who has disclosed himself in Scripture. And we can know him truly because he's gone public. You know, you can't worship a God that you don't know. Well, that's just mindless emotionalism. When folk gather and start to get excited about someone they don't know, like Matthew Henry said, blind sacrifices will never please a seeing God. 
On the other hand, if you come to truly know this God, you cannot help but react in praise and worship. You see, he's not sitting there for your cool, clinical, detached evaluation because to know him truly is to praise him duly. So how are you doing in your emotional engagement in worship? Is worship becoming for you boring or predictable? If so, maybe it's because you don't know him very well. We must know God before we can worship him. In particular, verse 3 says we must know three things. First, know that the Lord, he is God. That means Krishna is not and Buddha is not. And the God of Mormonism and the God of Islam is not God. The Lord alone is God. So the idea that there are many different valid pathways to God, that there are many equally acceptable religious expressions, may be popular today in the West, but it wasn't popular in the inspired biblical mindset. So we have a clear disjunction here. Know that the Lord, he is God. Now, that's the personal name of God, the God that he revealed in uh, covenant commitment to his people, the Lord in all caps, Yahweh, as it was disclosed to Moses, uncreated, infinitely perfect, self-sufficient, the fountain of all being is who we're talking about. But there's a second thing that we must know there in verse three. It is he who made us and we are his. That means he's our rightful owner. I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, angelic beings, world leaders, all of your money, all of your time. He owns all things because he made them all. And that means God has the right to tell you what to do with your body, for example. Sexual immorality gender identification, sexual attraction issues, addiction. Why is it that God can tell us what to do? Well, it's because it is he who made us and we are his. We weren't made for ourselves. We were made for the one who made us. And then there's a third thing that we must know. Not only is he our maker, he's our savior. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So he's the one God of the universe who intervened in human history, delivered a people out of bondage in Egypt and made them his treasured possession, his holy nation, and he cared for them, gently tending to them through the wilderness, guiding them through the turns and twists of life. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. God's people have always confessed The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, throughout all of Israel's history, God raised up leaders to take care of his people, judges and priests and kings and prophets. But if you're a Bible reader, you know that most of these leaders ultimately fleeced the flock and harmed them. Century after century, even the best of the leaders of Israel ultimately let them down. Eventually, God said, 
I'm going to step in and do it myself. I will shepherd my flock. I myself will tend my sheep. That's what we saw in Jeremiah. I want you to see it in Ezekiel because there's something beautiful here that I want you to see. Just turn quickly to Ezekiel. Turn to the right, beyond Isaiah, beyond Jeremiah. Look at Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, verse 15. 34, verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, so God was saying that he would personally step in, but how exactly? Well, look down at verse 23. Ezekiel 34, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When I read this, what's so strange about it is that at the time that Ezekiel wrote this, David had been dead for centuries. He was long gone. So God was saying he would raise up another David, a future prince from the line of David. And centuries later, of course, Jesus appeared as the great son of David. And what would he say? I am the good shepherd. Nowadays, we tend to romanticize shepherds especially around Christmas. You imagine the wimpish boys being holding cuddly lambs and playing musical instruments. The ancient view of shepherding, though, was very different from that. It was manly. These were men of danger, like David the shepherd. We're told, when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, said David, struck it and rescued the sheep from his mouth. That's always interesting to me because... What happens when a, a hungry bear has a meal in its mouth and you take the meal out of its mouth? Then you become the meal. David said, when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Well, that's what shepherds were. These were men who accepted the occupational hazards of the business. But Jesus was different from these shepherds in one important way. He came specifically to lay down his life. Some people become martyrs by virtue of the circumstances of their life. There was on, only one person who was born to be a martyr. And he said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died in our place for our sins on the cross. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed or how dark the night that the Lord passed through ere he found the sheep that was lost. Friends, we are not only sheep whom he owns, we're the sheep of his pasture whom he cares for and provides for. Now, in this life, troubles will surely come, but we are his. Sickness will eventually come. 
but we are his. Trials and disappointments, death will strike one day, but still we are his. He says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Friends, the day is coming when all of the troubles of this fallen world will be brought to an end. We will be brought out on the other side and still we're told in Revelation 7, the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. And to be owned by a savior like him is unimaginably good news. It's news worth singing about. It brings us to the second invitation to sing and to praise. Look at verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Notice again, even just in this verse, how a progression takes place. It's important to see that first, enter his gates. Now that would have given access to the temple. Then it says moving into his courts. That's a step closer to the divine presence. And then the ultimate reality of his name, blessing him for all of who he is. It's a description of true worship. True worship is a reaction to the splendor of God. It's not something that can be ginned up or generated by dimming the lights or smoke machines or even good music. I mean, you can produce emotions with these things, but true worship is a response to the sheer greatness, the wonder of God. So are you worshiping as the psalm is commanding you to do? Sometimes people refer to what we're doing now as a worship service. Kind of as though we became worshipers when we came into the room this morning. Tom Wells has said, if we're not worshipers when we come to the meetings, we shall not be worshipers in the meetings. Coming to the service will not make us worshipers at all. No, encountering the living God makes us react in stunned amazement. So we overflow into spontaneous praise as we draw near to him, as we get to know him better. I mean, we see parallels of this in the world, even among non-Christians. Right? People see something and they, they react with wonderment. Reminds me of the time that I was in Zambia with uh, my beloved associate pastor, Richard Nguisha. And uh, we went to a place called the Victoria Falls. Must be on the short list of the, the wonders of the world. Millions of gallons of water cascading over the rocks and plummeting to the bottom and rising in a wall of mist and rainbow. You know, the Victoria Falls makes Niagara Falls look like a trickle. It was the most stunning thing I think I'd ever seen. And, uh, you know, I was there with Richard and his family. And I kept looking at them saying, this is staggeringly beautiful. I can't believe this. And I would go from one family member to the other. And after a while, they said, we're used to it. We live here. But imagine the beauty of the one who made the Victoria Falls, the author, the architect of all of it. Friends, the heart of worship is praising the thing that is supremely captivating to us. And here is the invitation. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. 
and his courts with praise. As I've reflected on this psalm, it occurred to me that what the psalm is really all about is drawing near to God. Notice the language used in verse 2. Come into his presence with singing and compare that with verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. This is what life is all about. It's coming into the presence of God, into a relationship that's calculated to thrill your heart. There's just one problem. The problem is this. When we come to know ourselves more accurately and intimately, when we stumble in sin, when we become more acquainted with the corruption that remains in our heart, well, our reaction is not to come into the presence of God. Quite the opposite. We prefer to keep him at arm's length. We prefer to stay a healthy distance away from him. We know we're not worthy of his help. We don't deserve his kindness and love. So why should we be joyful considering what's going on in our hearts? We'll consider the final incentive. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Friends, here is a God who is not only great. It says he is good. That means he is generous. He is benevolent. It's just a part of who he is as God. And all he does is good. Like James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And so the whole world that he made was good originally. And he richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He's overflowing with kindness, perfect in generosity. And so every meal that you enjoy, every good night's sleep that you get, Every happy time in marriage, every satisfying project at work, every moment of health, every new life given to you, all of these things are expressions of God's kindness to us. And all of that in a world that's in open rebellion against him, ignoring him, denying him, defaming him. But do you know the ultimate display of the goodness of God? It's seen at the cross of Christ. It's at the cross of Christ where the, the holiness and righteousness and the mercy and kindness of God kissed, converged. You see, we were created by God and for God. We were made to be holy like him, but we've all turned away from him. We've radically fallen short. So we can, all of us in this room, say against you, you only have I sinned. We brought down on ourselves condemnation. The truth is, we are all rightly guilty before him. But remember, God promised to send that future prince, that David individual, into the world hundreds of years earlier. And when the time had fully come, God sent his son. And he lived the perfect life that we did not live. He voluntarily chose to die on the cross in the place of anyone who would turn and trust in him. He was crucified dead, buried. God raised him up on the third day. And so we know that this message is true. And he invites all of us to turn to him. And if you're here this morning as one who has not been born again, are you one who's not put your trust in Christ? 
Well, can you imagine a more wonderful savior, a kinder, more compassionate deliverer than one who loved you and gave himself for you? Turn from your sin. Entrust yourself to him. Yield all of your life to him and you will be saved. Verse 5 says, his steadfast love endures forever. That means God keeps his promises. He won't forget us. His faithfulness to all generations. Christ came to save sinners. Jesus said God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And for all of us who trust Christ, he removed our guilt. He took our condemnation upon himself. He bore it in his body on the tree and has separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. You see, this exchange took place on the cross. As Luther said it in a way that I so love, you, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness, and I am your sin. You have taken on yourself what you were not and have given to me what I am not. And friends, let's allow that to fuel our devotion today, not by coming to the Jerusalem temple, but by drawing near to Christ, the ascended high priest, the one who loves us and prays for us even today. When your guilt is removed, you're set free then to enter boldly into the gates of thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Lewis said God is the all-satisfying object. And the closer you get to Christ, well, the more deeply you will be thrilled. You know, the sins that plague you today will begin to loosen their grip the closer you get to Christ. Those cheap God substitutes that you fondle will be revealed for what they are. You'll be freed more and more to cast them aside and worship with joyful abandon. Friends, this is what we will be doing forever in a new heaven and a new earth with glorified bodies fully capable of enjoying communion with the living God in his unshielded presence for all of eternity, we'll be singing Revelation 5. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, this is what we were sat designed to be satisfied by in the end. All of the substitutes that beckon for your attention are paltry counterfeits. Do you have a better hope than this? So as we conclude with this psalm of thanks, that's what it's called in the title of the psalm, I would just ask you this. This kind of expression, this kind of uh, explosive reaction that's described in this psalm, does it characterize you? Do you praise him? Are you brimming with thanks? Even during difficult times. I mean, all of creation seems to get it. You know, Jesus once said that if the children didn't praise him, the very stones would cry out. Heaven seems to get it. In Revelation, we read of 10,000 times 10,000 angels exulting and praising him forever. And then there's us. What's wrong here? Well, there was once a woman who had fears that had totally taken over her life. And a biblical counselor was talking to this woman. And she said, 
You know, it's like your fears are on speed dial. They are right there, fully developed, with the push of one emotional button. You don't even have to go to the trouble of thinking about them. I don't know if you can identify with her. I don't know if you struggle with anxiety or a fear of man. But, you know, there's only one thing that can break that bondage, and it's this. It's giving thanks to God. Susan Lutz said, a life without thankfulness is like looking through the wrong end of a telescope. Little things look big. Big things begin to look little. So instead of interpreting your life through the lens of God's word, you begin to interpret God's word through the lens of your life. And of course, as a result, that makes God seem small, marginal, unremarkable. Friends, let's turn the telescope around. Let's give thanks for his indescribable gift. Do you know Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in London? He once shared the gospel with a woman who was so talkative that he could hardly get a word in edgewise. But in time, she came to understand her need, and she began to see the freedom and the promise of the good news of Jesus Christ. At which point she said to him, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if Christ saves me, he will never hear the end of it. (laughs) And indeed, he never will. For all eternity, do you know that the saints will be praising him in wondering astonishment? But the question is, will you? Are you among those who will be worshiping Christ for eternity? You know, they're not singing about this in the mosque. Not really. They're not singing about this in the Buddhist or Sikh temple. Not like this. Why not? Because they can never be jubilant with the songs of the forgiven. But we can. Because his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a new song to sing. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a message to speak to the neighborhood right outside these doors. Lord, we thank you for the high privilege of knowing Christ. Lord, we think of the ambitions that used to consume us. We think of the ways that we've been ennobled, how we've been made more human through a living relationship with the ascended Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we just pause this morning to thank you. Lord, we praise you that you've given us exaltation and wonder that exceeds what the world experiences. Lord, we long that you would use us as an instrument to communicate that message to the world outside. Lord, we pray that you might fuel our missions giving We pray that you might embolden us in evangelistic witness. And we pray that more and more, we in this room might be characterized by worshiping, wondering astonishment. And it might be punctuated even in this last song. For Jesus' sake, amen.